Alrighty, welcome back everybody. Finally made it to the weekend. Finally have time to record a video. Uh, so I'm gonna be going over a lot of stuff. The Well, the main thing in this video is this question right here. I posted this on the community tab of my YouTube page a couple days ago, and you'll see this if you're subscribed to me, but we had a lot of comments, had 54 comments on this. And the question I posed was, in your opinion, what's the most important thing in investing? So this is kind of a trick question because there's a lot of really important things in investing. I had one thing in mind before asking this that I was going to go over. And of all the very many good responses that I think are all very valid responses, there's one person that really hit the nail on the head with this. And so I'll highlight their comment as well. But I'm going to be going over that. Other things in the news, Trump is still in the news with the tariffs and he's been doing a lot. So I'll give my updated opinion on that. I know I talked about that in the last video. And then there was just a little update with Boeing. They came out with the software update for the 737 MAX plane. And then there was another update on 3M. The same analyst that I talked about in the video where I went over my industrials. And I pretty much said that at the time, I didn't think that 3M was going to be one that just quickly rebounded. The analyst from JP Morgan, his name is Stephen Tusa, he was spot on with GE and he gave an even lower price target for 3M. So he expects that the troubles will continue and a lot of other things for 3M. So I'll be going over that a little bit more as well. Now, before jumping into the main topic, I just wanted to talk just for a minute about this channel. I remember it was just two weeks ago. I was pretty excited about the idea of passing 2000 subscribers. And just from two weeks ago, we've passed 7,600 subscribers. So this community has grown pretty big. So thank you, first of all, for everybody that's sharing the channel with your friends. I think it has a really positive impact on people. And welcome everybody that's new. I've gotten a, a ton of emails of people that are excited about investing. And I think that's a really awesome thing to hear. Because there's so much entertainment out there that, I mean, you can look anywhere and find entertainment. But to find something that I think offers some entertainment value, but also can drastically improve your entire lifestyle is really important. And investing does do that. It improves your lifestyle. I'm not someone that just talks about investing. I actually do it. So I have a portfolio here. This is my money. It's a lot of my money invested into this portfolio. And what I do is I, I just give you updates on it. The dollar amount I put in the thumbnail of every single video, whether it goes up or down, sometimes it has gone down. I have a specific strategy that I implement and I use a broker called M1 Finance to implement it. That's what you're looking at here is this broker. Now, the strategy is called dividend growth investing because the idea of the strategy is not really to focus on the capital appreciation, but rather the focus on the dividend income. And the way that I try to get the most dividend income and the most dividend income growth is by investing in companies that not only do they pay dividends, but they have a habit of increasing the dividends they pay year over year. So in a combination of them increasing their dividends, those dividends being reinvested, and me making continual investments, I get an increased stream of revenue. And the whole idea behind this, the whole overriding idea, is to generate passive income. Pretty much money that I don't have to actively work for. Now, I'm sharing my journey. I'm doing this week over week. And along with this, though, I think there's more important things than just this portfolio because there's lots of different ways to make money with investing. But one overriding theme that helps everybody is, I don't know if you guys know about the term financial IQ. A guy named Robert Kiyosaki, he's the one that wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think he either, I don't know if he termed it, he at least popularized it. But financial IQ, I like the term because it pretty much means how good someone is with money. So people that have high financial IQs, they're able to take money, they're able to avoid scams. They're able to avoid people ripping them off. They're able to invest their money and to grow it and to 
and to create a lot of wealth with the money that they already have. People with a low financial cue, they invest in things that depreciate. They give their money to other people all the time in really bad ways. And, you know, they just do the opposite. And I think financial IQ overall, that idea is what separates people over long periods of time from living very, very wealthy lives and ones where where they have a lot of opportunity, they have a lot of means, they don't have a lot of financial anxiety from the people that end up just working their whole lives and are always at the whims of their job, at the whims of their paycheck, right? And so the idea behind this channel is to increase financial IQ, to get on the side where we're having our money work for us, where we're on the side where we're doing smart things with our money. In previous videos, I've gone over a lot of things on investing related topics, how to make your money work for you, and important ways on evaluating companies. In episode three of this series, I went over how to construct a dividend portfolio that looks similar to mine, how to find companies that fit the criteria of what I look for. In episode five, I go over what a moat is and how a company is like a castle and the moat around it protects that company from intruders coming in and sieging them. And you need to find companies that have durable moats that can withstand competition. In episode 13, I go over some of the biggest flaws in the way that people track and analyze their performance, ways that are misleading to them and misleading to other people. And so I go over these different investing principles, different financial principles. I've gone over budgeting and different things like that. And I'm going to continue to. And I hope that you guys enjoy it. I'm going to just share this journey, give my opinion on things. And I think it's awesome. I'm getting a lot of people and a lot of emails of people saying that they're just starting on investing and they have all these different questions. And so I think that's a great thing to have happen. Now, having said all of that, that kind of ties into this particular topic. Like I said, I made this post a couple days ago. In your opinion, what's the most important thing in investing? And I'll go through some of the comments here. We had, I mean, we had 54 comments. So thanks everybody for your input. I'm going to go over a couple of them here. JMAC says, being patient and never settling with your current portfolio. He goes on to talk about always looking for opportunities to learn and expand your knowledge. And then we have uh, to steal your nerves and invest with conviction. We have recognizing that money invested is money you're willing to lose. We have cash flow. Um, we have the reasons why you're investing, you know, doing it for your, your children or your family, your future, that type of thing. And then we have a lot more comments. There's some similarities between, between some of them. We have consistency mentioned a lot. We have, you know, slow, steady, smart investing. We have time and, and some luck. Uh, luck was mentioned a lot. Time was mentioned a lot. But I want to jump to one person's comment that really hit the nail on the head. And that is Montas. He says, did not see anyone mention this. The most important thing in investing, the stock market, real estate, otherwise, is risk management. Five and a half gold stars for you, Montas. That is exactly what the video is about. It's about risk. So go ahead and I'll thumbs up you. I already uh, hearted the comment there, so I'll give him a thumbs up. Now, to introduce this topic of risk, I wanted to go to somebody named Howard Marks. On the thumbnail of the video, that guy there that's in black and white, his name's Howard Marks. He's the manager of Oak Tree Capital, a hedge fund that he started that manages about 120 something billion dollars, right? He's wildly successful in investing and has been for a very long time. But more importantly than that, he's a great teacher. And he talks all the time and lectures all the time about different investing topics. And I'll just go ahead and play this clip. I talk all the time about the most important things in investing and I name off dozens of things, each of which I consider the most important thing. But I truly believe that risk is the most important thing. Understanding, recognizing, and controlling risk is something that I've really devoted my life to. So right off the bat, Howard Marks, he lists off three things. Understanding, 
recognizing and controlling for risk. I think out of those three things, we we pretty much we get one of them right off the bat. We get recognizing. When I think back to the first thing that I thought when I went into the stock market, you can think about it yourself. If you're new to the stock market, if you're new to investments in general, what is your first initial concern to putting your money in investments? What is the first thing that crosses your mind? It's risk. It's that you're putting your money at risk. And your money represents your time, your energy, your your talents, that you've gone to a job, you've traded all of that in for money, and now you're going to put your money at risk and potentially lose it. So we do have some kind of ingrained uh, idea of risk. We, we realize that putting our money into investments, there's something inherently risky about it. But what we try to do is we try to come up with these methods to control for risk. And I'm on the drawing board here, and I'm going to draw out a little bit of how like just the scale of risk in investments from left to right. The left side is going to be the least risky. So we have minus here. Then we have plus here. So the right side is going to be the most risky. Okay, so here we go. To speed things up, I just went and put together this really crude graph of the different type of investments that you can do, typically speaking. There's a lot more than this, I realize. I, I mean, I could fill this whole page up with them. But off to the left, we have, like I said, the least risky. Off to the right, we have the most risky. Um, on the very left, we have a savings account. That's FDINC insured. That's about as safe as it gets. Uh, beyond that, we have treasuries, which are about as safe. Um, they're U.S. bonds from the government. And then we have investment-grade bonds. These are the highest-rated bonds that rating agencies say that these companies are good to pay back their bonds. Beyond that, we have junk bonds. Now, these bonds are from companies that creditors say that they may run into credit risk, that you could have them default and, and go bankrupt and not pay you back. And you'll notice that as we move from left to right, the amount of uh, money that you can earn potentially increases. So if you go from investment grade bonds, for instance, to junk bonds, you go from like a three to 4% return to like a five to 6% return. If you go from treasuries, you go from like a two to 3% to three to 4%. From savings, you go, you know, two to 3% to treasuries. Like it gets even a smaller difference there. From junk bonds to dividends, then you're going from bonds which is a credit to you dividends, which is an equity. And equity in companies typically less safe than it is to have a, a fixed income. So we have dividend stocks, and then now we're in equities. And within the equities, dividend stocks are usually, typically the most conservative. Obviously, there's outliers in each of these situations, but dividend stocks are usually the most conservative. Then you have value, value stocks, which are stocks that they're just priced really low for their inherent value. Then you have growth stocks, which they're companies that you're hoping will expand and, and gain new market share. And then beyond that, you have concentrated bets and you have options, which are, are by their very nature, instruments where you try to make a lot of money in a short amount of time. So we have all of these different things. And as you move left to right, you, you start to increase your risk. And the basic understanding that a lot of people have is that the more that you increase your risk, the more money you'll make in the long run. That is the idea that we've been ingrained to over and over again. And Howard Marks has some different input on that subject. So I'm going to go to another, another clip here. I'd like to give you an example that illustrates my thinking on the subject of risk. The new theory of investment had center the relationship between risk and return. And it was encapsulated in a graphic that showed a line that was upward sloping to the right, indicating a positive correlation as risk increases, return increases. 
Many people have misinterpreted this relationship to suggest that riskier assets offer higher returns, and if you want to make more money, the way to do it is to take more risk. I think both of these formulations are highly misleading. Uh, in short, if riskier assets could be counted on to produce higher returns, uh, then they wouldn't be riskier, would they? So the thing that stuck out to me when I actually watched this the first time was that very last part where he says that if something could be counted on to give higher returns, then it wouldn't be risky. And that makes sense because part of risk is something that's unknown. If I look at my portfolio and I go, I have, I have some treasuries, I have some investment grade bonds, and I have dividend stocks. And that comprises the majority, well, pretty much all of my portfolio. If I look at that on the scale, you can see that it is mostly, if I if I clump this together, it's mostly a conservative portfolio. I have about 20% into treasuries and investment grade bonds, 10% in each of those, and the rest in mostly blue chip dividend paying stocks. I don't go much into this right side here. And his point is, is that he'll illustrate this, is that as you move more to the right, not only does the expected return increase, but the number of possible outcomes increases. The more you shift to the left, the number of possible outcomes decreases. So I'll let him explain this and and show you a new graph of what risk really looks like. I have incorporated another graphic approach to the same relationship. I've taken the same upward sloping line and superimposed a number of bell-shaped probability distributions at different stages of the risk curve. What they indicate is that the outcome at a given level of risk is not a fixed point as suggested by that simple line, but rather a range of possibilities. As we move out the risk curve to the right, not only does the expected return increase, but at the same time the range of possible outcomes becomes greater and the bad outcomes become worse. I think this is the nature of risk. So did you guys catch the difference between the two graphs? I'll go ahead and throw this second one up, which is the, the, the one where he believes it's a more accurate graph. It has the probability distributions with it. The simple one just shows that one line that shows that as most people talk about risk, the more risk you take over a long period of time, the higher return you get. And that's how a lot of the conversations with risk go, is that you know over a long period of time, just take more risk. You'll just get a better return. But that's not the true nature of it. And if it could be counted on to always give a higher return, then there would be nothing risky about it. What he's saying is that more risk you take on, it opens you up to a greater possibility of outcomes, that the highs could be really high and the lows could be really low with it. And so what you need to do is look at this graph and see where you fit in on it. See what kind of outcomes you're okay with having. If you're not okay with having these extreme outcomes on either end, then you need a tailor in your risk. Like if I look at my portfolio, um, I look at the, the breakdown and the big majority of it's in real, real estate, in bonds, in utilities, in financial companies, right? And most people consider this a very conservative portfolio. In fact, I've probably gotten more criticism about it being too conservative than I ever have about it being too, uh, too aggressive or anything like that. And the thing about that is, is that I'm okay with this portfolio. It's tailored to my risk level. I want to limit the amount of outcomes. I know that I'm limiting my amount of upside on it, that I'll never have extremely high outcomes with this. And what I have to do is when I look at the returns and I look at week by week, I look and I have to look at other people's portfolios and know that mine's going to trail them when uh, risk management isn't being rewarded. 
And risk management isn't being rewarded until it is. And it's too late for the people that aren't managing their risk when when risk comes in, when it presents itself, when there's a big downturn. It's too late to do it at that point. I'm doing it now because I don't know when that will happen and I want to limit the possible outcomes. Uh, For people that want to take on greater risk, they have to just be prepared for that. You have to know that your portfolio is going to have much more drastic swings, that it will be uh, difficult when there's long recessions or things like that that happen and your portfolio dips down. And so if you're not prepared for that, I would recommend tailoring your portfolio more conservative. That's what I've done for myself. And you just got to know if you have a more conservative portfolio that you're going to have the fear of missing out. You're going to be looking at other people's portfolios that race up in times that are good. But like I said, this comes down, risk management comes down to the person, what your risk tolerance is. Uh, You just need to know that as you increase risk, the possible outcomes do increase as well. So that was the biggest point I wanted to get out of this video. I will say on one ending note on this topic, if I look back at this graph and I look back at savings and treasuries and all this stuff, it can all be scary. And that's not my intention is to scare people. It's just to to tailor your risk according to your needs, right? If you are, you know, if you're already kind of concerned about it, start off with some investments that are a little bit more conservative until you get a lot of confidence that you can move into things that are a little bit more risk prone. But what I will say is that if you just do this your whole life, just invest in savings, that's the riskiest thing you can do. Because if you look at any of the math, if you never have any kind of compounding, any kind of investing, unless you have a job that's paying 300000 a year, you're not going to have a lot of money when you retire. You're going to be you're going to need help. You're going to be living off of social security and other things. Really the way to have a comfortable retirement is to introduce some risk. You have to have some risk in your life. You have to invest your money if you want to have a comfortable retirement. And so the riskiest thing out of everything you can do here is just put your money in savings and never invest it, uh, which is kind of counterintuitive, right? That's literally the most safe thing that you can do on this scale. But that if that's all you do, that is the riskiest thing you can do. So Just some things to think about. I know I get a lot of questions about my uh, portfolio allocation, you know, why I'm in these dividend stocks. Some people say that I should just go pure growth and all that type of stuff. But I try to explain it, my thought process behind it, um, and why I think it's a good portfolio for me. So I'm not saying that it's good for everybody else. But anyway, moving on from this, I'll go ahead and I'll talk about some news now. So the first thing of news is Trump and the tariffs. We got news a little bit ago that says that that Mr. Trump said the U.S. has reached a deal to exempt Canada and Mexico from the tariffs on steel and aluminum that were imposed last year. So, I mean, this goes right along with my basic thesis behind this whole tariff news. The reason that I said that I wasn't worried about the tariffs tanking the stock market, like a lot of people are, is because Trump has hitched his wagon to the economy, to the stock market. He's already his his reputation somewhat combined to it at this point, which I don't think is super smart politically speaking because he doesn't have ultimate control over it. And so he's kind of hitched it to something that he doesn't really control himself. He certainly influences it. But um, regardless, his reputation is linked to it. So he has strong incentive to keep the economy going and to keep the stock market going. If it falls, it will reflect badly on him, especially with the upcoming elections. So I can't see him letting the Chinese tariff business tank the stock market. I do think he wants to be hard on China and he's okay with it causing some temporary suffering in America because so far it's doing a lot more damage in China and he's trying to get China to budge on some of the things he's asking for. 
So I think that comes down to it. And instead of being easier on China, what he's doing to try to bump up the stock market and keep everybody here happy is he's, you know, he's doing this agreement with Mexico and Canada. So this makes sense. I think that he'll continue to try to appease the people here, try to make uh, make good with some allies while keeping hard on China. I, I don't see this as a long-term threat to the stock market or anything like that. So the Boeing update, I'm not going to say too much about. There's really not much to it. Uh, they, they pretty much just came out with a software update that they believe fixes what causes the planes to crash. And they've done a lot of testing. So they've done 270 flights, 207 flights in 360 hours. And they've tested a lot. They're ready to go on and train pilots and get it back in the sky. So that's really all there is about that. Uh, the big news, I think, was JP Morgan. I talked about 3M. It was actually like it's on the thumbnail of one of my videos. You know, their stock has been getting really hurt over the past bit. So we got right here. It came out with some bad news. It's gone down 22% since April 24th. Right now, it's, 16 at, it's sitting at 169. Now, I highlighted this uh analyst Stephen Tusa who he talked about it last time and said it was at a quote premium valuation um I I showed some video of it how he said it would go lower well they actually just lowered their recommendation on it even more the price target of it even more JP Morgan has an underweight rating on 3M and cuts its year to price year end price target to 143 a share from 154 a share so right now, 3M has already fallen. Like I said, it's fallen 22%. It's at almost 170, and they're cutting it down to 143. So it still has a ways to fall. I mean, they really think that this has the ways to fall. They even say, there's, I mean, the, J, the JP Morgan analysts even say that there's a chance they'll cut their dividend. So I was asked um, if this was a holding. I have it in my industrials here, and I bumped it down. Like I said in that video, I bumped this down a little bit. And I was asked if I was going to uh, put more money into this. And the answer is no. I bumped down the holding. And so there's not going to be more funding into it right now. I still plan on holding it. If they cut their dividend, I would sell it. I think that means that they're going to have some that they're going to have some long-term issues. But right now, I mean, we don't know if they're going to cut their dividend or not. I don't plan on putting more money into a company that might be in danger of that or analysts are saying they're going to do that, right? But I plan on holding it until they do. So if they're able to work these out while keeping the cash flow coming, I plan on, on holding it. Other than that, I'll go ahead and just answer a couple questions for you real quick. So the first question is from Brian Martinez. He says, hey, Joseph, do you think M1 would be good option for the long term? The answer to that is yes. Obviously, I have my money in it. I think it's a good broker for the long term. I've done a lot of research on it. And I mean, I think they just have a great business model. Other brokers that are a lot bigger, you got like Wealthfront and Betterment and and even Acorns, these other brokers, that they pretty much spent all their money on advertising. I see, the, I, I still get their advertisements. They blast their ads everywhere. And I feel like M1 Finance has spent its time building a quality product. And uh, I mean, that's how they get their advertising is people love it and they share it, share it with other people and spread it that way. So I think they'll do good for the long term. I'm, I hope they're around for the long term, but I, I think they'll do good for the long term. Another one, Matt L, he says, if you don't mind me asking, what uh, what was the amount you started investing? I want to start a dividend portfolio, but I don't have too much. The amount that I initially deposited into my account was $2,000. Um, I mean, any amount doesn't seem like a lot. You can start with 100 bucks, and if you just start auto-investing, uh, M1 Finance has a scheduler. So just set it to put in like you know, 10, 20 bucks a week or 50 bucks a month or whatever you're able to afford. It'll start adding up. Like It, it goes so slowly at the start. Like investing really starts off slowly. Most people don't have just 
tens of thousands of dollars sitting around that they can invest, right? Uh, so you have to start. It starts off slowly, but once you get the ball rolling, it becomes a lot more fun and, uh, and it just, you know, it's like a snowball effect. It gets going a little bit faster. Um, Simon Krugley says, uh, Joseph, I can't speak for all brokerages, but Schwab, you can drip partial shares and there's no fee to do so. There's a $4.95 commission for a new transaction though. Okay. So this one I wanted to comment on because I got a lot of people pointing this out. So I think I gave off the wrong impression in one of the videos I did. Um, yeah, so I get that, uh, in, in pretty much every broker, drip is free, which drip means like, if I look at, if I go to my portfolio here, if I go to the activity, this shows what's happening in my portfolio and I go to the dividend two days ago. So two days ago, I was paid this week, $16 in dividends. And then this went, the $16 was split up and it bought all these different companies. So with the drip, most, most brokerages offer drip. This is not drip. What DRIP is, is when Realty Income Corp pays a dividend, that dividend has to be reinvested right back into the same holding, into Realty Income Corp. If Maine or Avi pay a dividend, that dividend gets reinvested right back into these two holdings. M1 Finance is different than DRIP because the money is just pooled together and then it uses this, um, it uses this algorithm, right? This right here to find what of your, what of your holdings are underweight and that's the, where it puts the money. So like in this example, these were not reinvested back into these holdings because these ones are underweight. Instead, it bought these ones that I bumped up a little bit. So that's the difference. I get that that was uh, the way that I phrased that. That was kind of confusing. The last question is from Kai. He says, great video, Joseph. Thank you for the info. Me and my wife are working on paying the house off in the next year and then starting investing for dividends. What are your thoughts on starting to invest now versus waiting till a home is paid off? We are in our mid 30s. Okay, so the general advice is to start investing even if you have a home mortgage. So even Dave Ramsey, who is, I mean, he's the arch nemesis of debt, right? He even says to, he advises to put 15% away in investments in your like Roth IRA or whatever in your investment account before paying additional payments on your house. However, in your question, you say next year. So your situation, I mean, everybody's in different specific situations. In your situation, if you can pay your home off, your entire mortgage off next year, I probably would hold off on investing. Like I honestly would probably just pay off your home, then invest afterwards. But if it was longer, if it was, I mean, five to 10 years or something like that, then yes, I would say invest at least like your 15% before you pay additionally. Um, but with it just being a year, I'd probably just pay off the home myself. So that's my advice on it. Anyway, I have another video coming up soon, hopefully. And uh, I appreciate you guys tuning in. I'll talk to you next time.